Um, so, Matt, how'd you get into archaeology? Uh, well, so actually, my grandfather was a uh, kind of an amateur archaeologist. He um, he worked for a variety of companies, kind of all around aerospace with, with NASA, and so he had this really really stressful job. And so, <laughs> what he did to unwind would be to go on digs at a variety of like places like Earthwatch and things like that. Oh wow! Yeah, so. He, he was doing that, you know, throughout when he was in the 60s and 70s. And he would, you know, he'd come back and have all these great photos and stories and stuff about going on digs. And so when I turned, I think it was when I turned either 12 or 13, he took me on a dig with him. Um, and it was at Crow Canyon. Oh, wow. Know. Yeah. So I went there when I was, I think, I don't know if I was 12 or 13 and, uh, and just fell in love with it. Just really... Love the whole process, um, love being in the field, love the kind of, you know, the finding of, of the treasures kind of thing. You know, 12-year-old boy, it's just, you know, a, a wonderful thing to do for the summer. Yeah. Uh, and then I just I just got really hooked. I just kept going back. So I went to Crow Canyon for, I think, three or four different summers throughout junior high and high school. And, and then, you know, kind of got more into, you know, less about just... The, the act of digging and finding and more into the more thinking about past peoples and heritage and, and those kinds of things and just really got hooked into it. And so just ran with it from there. What an amazing experience. That's, that's really cool. So when, what age were you when you um, kind of picked it back up in, in school? Did you, you know, did you have to wait until college to kind of study that in school or did you find ways to follow that, um, you know, the rest of your primary and, and uh, high school and all that? Yeah, there was really no outlet in high school for it. Um, I went to a really small school where their electives were Spanish or not Spanish. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> only choices. And so there was there was no real like way of doing anything in high school except the summers were always really special because I could go back and go on digs during the summers. So, but then um, in college, that's when I was able to really focus in on it. And I chose my undergraduate based on wanting to go back out to the Southwest. So I went to school in Colorado and chose a school that had a really good anthropology program and just kind of never looked back after that. That is great. So fast forward a few years, what are some of the things that have helped keep you in the field? Yeah, I mean, so... There, there's a lot of there have been a lot of points where it's it's been challenging to to think about archaeology as, as a career but really you know it's kept me in the field more than anything else are are my friends in the field the kind of the community you build with other archaeologists and other people in the in the field is just unlike really almost any other job I can imagine and I think that's really what has kept me going is the the variety of, of people I've worked with that are also enthused and, and interested, but are also facing similar challenges. And um, the ability to kind of work with them out in the field and then back in the labs and kind of continuing relationships, both kind of um, professional and personal, I, I think that's really what's kept me going more than anything else. That is great. And that's not an answer I've heard before. That's So that's really interesting. And I, I couldn't agree more. You know, you kind of make these forever friends that, um, you know, many of them kind of become family. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if there's very many other jobs where, yeah, you, you, you make your best friends at work and you, yeah. and, you, and, you, and you continue to make best friends at work like throughout your, throughout your career. You know, like I think a lot of people, you know, you don't really make many new friends when you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s. But I mean, every time I go to a new dig, I make 
great new friends that last a really long time. So it's yeah. unique in a way. I mean, maybe not unique, but it's that's certainly a special aspect of it. Yeah, that is really special. I mean, that that and how much money we make. I mean, I can't. <laughs> yeah, we're all in it for the money. Yeah, money and friends. Yeah. Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This week's episode is releasing a little bit off schedule. I've been very sick for a while and I'm finally feeling better. I lost my voice there for a little bit, but I found it. It's back. Um, I will have another episode as a bonus for you next week. So stay tuned and enjoy today's episode with Dr. Matt Sanger from Binghamton University. So I've got Dr. Matt Sanger on the show. You're the Associate Professor of Anthropology and the co-director of the Master of Public, Master of Arts in Public Archaeology program, or MAPA, at Binghamton University. Uh, yes. Matt, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your work? You're a recent PhD, and you've done a lot of research in the southeastern U.S., is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I do most of my work um, kind of the coastal southeast, so coastal South Carolina, Georgia, less so also in Florida. Um, so most, most of my field work is really based on um, archaic period um, peoples living in the southeast. So um, it's got a pre-agricultural groups that are um, hunter-gatherer fishers. And what, what I'm really interested in, um, especially in the southeast and the coast, um, we start finding early signs of sedentism, population growth, aggregation, um, really complex ritual lives and long distance exchange occurring within these fisher hunter um, gatherer groups. That's not unique, but it's, it's certainly really special to the area. And so I'm really interested in how those kind of different institutions and practices formed during the archaic period. That is neat. And just as I was browsing through some of your research, it looks like you use a lot of different techniques and kind of approaches to gather information. What are some of the things that you're using? Yeah, so early on, I, I, I've been doing a lot of geophys, geophysical research, you know, things like ground penetrating radar, magnetometry, resistivity, those kinds of things to get a handle on site structure. Um, a lot of the sites that I'm, I'm most interested in are these early village sites that are also probably used for kind of ceremonial gathering. And so their structure is really important, exactly how they're laid out, um, different specialized use areas within them. So um, geophysics was an important tool to kind of get at some of that data. Um, and then I'm also uh, kind of more broadly interested in kind of a landscape approach that uses a lot of things like LIDAR, um, using drones and, and aerial platforms for, for gathering topographic data as well. So that's another kind of technique that I use um, in the field. And then back in the lab, um, these early um, sedentary peoples look like they're also starting to develop pottery. And so I'm really interested in the ways in which we can garner additional information from pottery besides the kind of the normal techniques. And one thing that I've kind of stumbled across that's been really useful is using CT scanning to better understand how exactly pots were formed. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so especially this really interesting interesting thing for me is these early potters, you know, they're 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 playing with a whole variety of techniques. So 
you know, like we in our own childhoods, like learn how to do things like pinch potting and coil building. Um, but these early potters are also doing interesting things like mold building and, um, and slab building and a whole bunch of other ways of building pots that are, are just kind of interesting unto themselves, but are, are particularly interesting for me in that they look like different groups of potters are using different techniques at the same time. And so by using CT scanning on, on vessels, you can actually get an idea of which community um, each vessel is coming from in a way that would be really, really difficult to do otherwise. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, so to bring that back around to public archaeology, how did you get interested in public archaeology? Oh, and that, that's, a, that's a, kind of a long answer and short answer. <laughs> the short answer is I worked at the American Museum of Natural History for a really long time in New York City. And obviously, the, a major mission of the museum is engagement with the public. And um, so that was that was the first time I kind of got outside of my you know, academic bubble and started thinking about the ways in which archaeology is kind of inherently public or ought to be public and the ways in which we try to share information with the public. And so I kind of came from it from a museum point of view, but I also have a, a CRM background as well, which is its own unique form of public archaeology. And so I started putting those things together kind of over, over time and started thinking about the ways in which um, I'm interested in how archaeology can become more public and the ways in which we can kind of transform ourselves into a better kind of public service um, than, than we currently are. And so that's, that's kind of how I came around to public archaeology as being a focus. Nice. So um, public archaeology is a term that gets thrown around a lot, especially lately as some archaeologists have become more vocal about the harm of isolating heritage from the people impacted by it. And also, you know, just as you said, uh, to, to really better appreciate the, the intersection with the public, um, of archeology. span Um, but what exactly makes public archeology span public? So, um, mm -hmm. Matt, could you give us a, a definition of public archeology span just so we're all on the same page here? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, there's a variety of definitions out there, but the one I like is just the most simple, which is public archaeology is simply any time we're bringing information about the past um, outside of the academic sphere. Okay. And, and so, I mean, that's it's a really broad brush, but I think we, we want to be really broad with these definitions, at least at the beginning. Nice. Um, so to the MAPA program, uh, I was very impressed to read about it, and I, I had heard about it. Uh, I think about a year or so ago, and uh, I I talk off and on with uh, Kate Ellenberger, who's also at, at Binghamton there. And mm -hmm. uh, for pr prospective students, it's key to understand the end result of any program that they're going to get into. And that's something that's not often clearly communicated in other programs. Mm -hmm. But the MAPA program does a really good job of, of communicating exactly that. And so from the website itself... It says, the focus of the program is the intersection between archaeology and the many organizations that have a stake in the management, protection, study, and conservation of the archaeological record. As such, graduates can expect to find careers in private, environmental engineering, energy, and architectural firms, and governmental sectors such as federal, state, tribal, and local agencies. 
With training, MAPA students can also prepare themselves for careers in agencies that define policies for educational initiatives, heritage organizations that work directly with descendant communities, institutions that award and administer grants, and museums that are both privately and publicly funded. So I think the key here is reading between the lines to know that public archaeology is adaptable and applicable to a wide variety of career paths, and many of them can fall outside of traditional archaeology or anthropology jobs. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's critical because those traditional jobs are becoming fewer and fewer while the competition is becoming more and more fierce. And um, I think there, there's a lot of programs out there that really do a, a remarkable disservice to their students in that they're still operating on outdated models of people used to get PhDs and find positions no problem outside of it within the academic world. Yeah. And that's just not the case anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you just have to be realistic about the world you're getting yourselves into. And and so, I mean, that's one of the first things we we are trying to train our students about. And we often don't have to train them about that. They're, they're often come in already knowing this, but that there is a wide world of positions out there that archaeological expertise lends itself to. Um, and we have to, but, but it's, but it requires specialized training and it requires specialized knowledge that um, are very hard to acquire on your own. Um, and so that's what the MAPA program is really about is kind of getting students into the mindset of knowing that there are positions out there, but they have to be um, very flexible about thinking about those positions look like, and that they are going to require very specialized training and knowledge that we're going to attempt to give them um, in the brief two years that they're here. Nice. So let's take a deeper dive on the kinds of training and perspectives and experience that MAPA students can get in the program. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, a variety of things. So, um, you know, we really try to train students uh, in, in more traditional kind of CRM um, applications. So in the world of CRM, I mean, I don't, I don't need to tell you this, but some of your listeners perhaps, um, CRM, you, you need to know GIS if you want to have any chance in the world of doing well in CRM these days. I mean, that used to be a really specialized skill that only a few people in the office would have, but now you need to know GIS in order to do well. So we, we make sure we train our students in GIS. Um, we also see uh, remote sensing and geophysics as the future of um, field work kind of more broadly in CRM and kind of everywhere. So we train our students um, or give opportunities for them to be trained in doing geophysics, using drones for um, remote in imaging, um, processing satellite imagery, uh, those kinds of things as well. Um, we also train students in kind of traditional field techniques of, of excavations and, and survey work, of course, as well. Um, in the lab, we, we try to provide a broad range of very specialized lab studies that are tailored to individual student interests. So I think we're up to 12 different archaeological labs on campus, which is kind of crazy. Wow. And they cover, they cover everything from ancient genetics. So we have a DNA lab where students can learn um, how to, how to um, acquire, process, analyze, and interpret DNA um, finds. We also have uh, ceramic-focused labs, lithic-focused labs, GIS-focused labs. Um, we also do zoo archaeology and archaeobotanical work as well. So obviously, no student can do all of those things, but you know, we try to get a student to focus in on one or two lab techniques that they're also trying to pick up on. 
And then finally, um, I mean, you need to know more than just simple techniques, either field or, or lab. And what you really need to know in order to do well in um, outside of academics is you need to know the laws and regulations that uh, form our field and inform our, our research. So we have classes that um, teach those, those kinds of laws and regulations, whether they're kind of more museum-based, so things more, more about like NAGPRA and uh, UNESCO, or more like CRM-based, so more things like uh, Section 106 and, and those kinds of directions. Okay. So we try to provide pretty well-rounded um, uh, training, both kind of field and lab, but also in, in the kind of broader context of where archaeology is within the public sphere. Nice. And so the kind of research or the kind of work that MAPA students are doing, um, do they have kind of like a, uh, what would be the word for it, like a keystone project or kind of a thesis that they're working on or both? Yeah, yeah. So um, not all MA programs require a thesis, but we do. And um, we have a very specific reason for that. And that is... um, with a, with a master's degree, you ought to be able to prove that you can um, sustain research that has broader implications and can put all of those things into paper. <laughs> <laughs> and not everyone can do that, but you need to be able to prove you can do that, in our view, to, um, to do well in the world of public archaeology. And so we demand a thesis out of all of our students. And that thesis comes from... Um, you. W- students gather the data for their thesis through a summer internship program. And so we place students into um, internships in a variety of places that are really tailored to what the student is interested in. So for example, um, one of our recent graduates was really interested in the ways in which FEMA, um, you know, Federal Emergency Management Agency, deals with historic properties during large-scale catastrophic events and afterwards. So um, she was especially interested in how things like hurricanes and and massive storms were dealt with on on the eastern seaboard. So we placed her within a FEMA office in New York City for her to kind of learn the ins and outs of what it is like to work in that kind of office, um, what it's like to identify historic properties that have been damaged, how it is that Uh, property owners of those historic properties have to jump through various hoops, but can get more funding to get those properties repaired. And then ways in which FEMA is also kind of proactively thinking about protecting these properties. So she spent a summer um, doing this research, then wrote a thesis that kind of compared um, the ways in which uh, people, uh, FEMA offices in New York City versus FEMA offices in New Orleans dealt with um, their, their various storms being Superstorm Sandy and uh, Hurricane Katrina yeah. and kind of had this really remarkable thesis kind of thinking about the, the place of emergency management. And, um, and, and so that was, that was her capstone project. And that's, that's the kind of thing that we try to do is we try to really work with students in their first semester, really, and identify what it is that they're really interested in and then spend the second semester placing them within an internship that, that really speaks to those interests, but that will also generate the data that they need to do this kind of capstone thesis. That's very cool. That sounds like a, a really clever research um, question there. 
uh, and it seems to intersect with a lot of things like, uh, you know, like emergency management, land use management and, you know, climate change and yeah. all that. That's, uh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Unfortunately, a growing field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's me and there's no lack of emergencies coming our way. So it's, it's it was a wise career move too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <clears throat> um, so uh, I have a few other questions about the MAPA program. Uh, yeah. So the the application portion of the website mentions uh, that you pull in students from various backgrounds and, uh, you know, people with, with majors in kind of related fields can apply. What are some good ways that students can prepare for the MAPA program if they're still in undergrad and maybe in a different field or, you know, one that's not directly lined up with archaeology? They should do a field school. They should get in the field. Um, I the, That's the most important thing to trying to realize whether or not archaeology is the right fit is to just you have to go and do it. Yeah. Uh, I know we don't have this problem here because we, we don't take anybody that hasn't done a field school. But I've been in other programs where, you know, you would take someone that's never been in the field, but shows a lot of interest into maybe a master's or even a Ph.D. program. And, you know, they're two or three years into it and they do their field, first field work and they realize they hate it. <laughs> and then what are you going to what are you going to do then? I mean, you're 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 you know, you've, you've chosen a path. And that path is going to become very difficult if you don't like um, what it entails. And so the most important thing before anybody goes into any program in having to do with archaeology is to go out, do some field work and figure out whether or not you like it. And I would also strongly urge not to go to a really easy field work, you know, in, in somewhere, you know, in southern Italy where you're going to be, you know, in a you know, <laughs> wonderful place on a daily basis and drinking wine by two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, you should go to a, a really tough field project that is going to push you to your limits. And so you need to figure out whether or not you enjoy it. And it's not for everybody and no one should feel bad if they don't enjoy it. Yeah. You need to figure that out soon. And so that would be my strongest suggestion to everyone is go do some really tough field work and figure out if you like it or not. That is great advice. And I might add to that that uh, things to look for in a field school are um, the options, at least, to get kind of something in all of the boxes. So you want to be looking at some some excavation, some lab work, um, the opportunity to do some kind of hands-on research. Yep. And if you get some survey work in there too, that's, that's also an added bonus. That way you get an idea of kind of all of, all of the different ways that you do field work. Um, and you know, like, like you just said, Matt, uh, it's going to be really tough one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And you should, you shouldn't shy away from the tough ones either. You know, no. you, at some point in your life as an archeologist, you're going to go into some really bad field conditions and, um, you want to be prepared for what those look like. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, it really sucks in the moment, but it sure is a growing experience. It is. It is. And you got to figure that out sooner than later. Yeah. So I guess the same goes. Uh, I had another question, uh, but I guess the same goes for this. Uh, I was going to ask, what about early career archaeologists uh, or people who are between undergrad and their masters? Um, you, you know, I would I would say that there are, are still ways that 
people can get involved in field work, even if they're not a student. You know, uh, often field schools will take non-students, but there's also volunteer programs you know, mm-hmm. throughout the country that you can get in on, you know, uh, other public archaeology uh, programs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really hit or miss about where you are, but, um, you know, local archaeological societies can be wonderful places. So where, where I work in the Southeast, local archaeological societies are just wonderful. They are, they're sometimes running their own digs. Um, it's entirely staffed by my volunteers, except for maybe the very person at the top who's um, a, a bit more experienced and who's kind of running things. But there's a lot of opportunities um, for kind of volunteer um, programs, especially through these kind of local archaeological societies. So everyone should join their local archaeological societies, whether or not they're thinking about going into um, archaeology as a career or not. But it's that's a great place to kind of find opportunities to do work in the field. They often are also doing um, kind of lab-based work um, or collections-based work. And so that's that's a place to kind of really find those, those opportunities when you're kind of in between stages. Nice. And so... Um... You know, I've never worked in a museum, but that's one of those areas of archaeology that I've always been interested in. Yeah. What are some ways that people can get involved in uh, working in museums? Are there are there volunteer opportunities? Is that kind of a common thing, or is that more like you have to approach it at the academic level? It really matters. So, I mean, almost invariably museums are horribly understaffed and horribly underfunded. So they are almost always looking for volunteers. Um, Sometimes they don't know they're looking for volunteers though. Sometimes they don't know that that's really an option out there. And so sometimes you have to be a little creative. You have to find the person that um, could use your help and get in contact with them directly. So especially a lot of like local historic museums and um, local uh, places like that, they would love to have volunteers, but they don't have a, a program out there. So I strongly suggest people get creative and make those connections themselves and um, just kind of offer their services to, to help out. Um, larger institutions all have volunteer programs. So where I work in the Museum of Natural History or places like the Field Museum or Smithsonian, those are all going to have volunteer opportunities as well that vary between, you know, kind of being docents out in the halls or working within uh, actual laboratories. Those those vary quite a bit about whether or not you need to kind of advance training, but most of them pretty much you just need to have a undergraduate degree and you can kind of get yourself in the door. Nice. Well, what are some other things about the MAPA program uh, that you would like to share? Well, one thing about the MAPA program that is interesting is not just the MAPA program, it's kind of our um, department as a whole here at Binghamton, is that we're um, also quite interested in in producing archaeologists that are really civically engaged uh-huh. and polit- politically engaged as well. And so we really see public archaeology as um, not outside of the sphere of politics or not outside of the sphere of civic engagement, but really we want to produce people that see themselves as kind of imbricated in these larger discussions. And so we spend a lot of time um, talking about how policy is produced um, on kind of local levels and all the way up to federal levels and really thinking about how um, activism comes into archaeology in the, yeah. in the public as well. And so we really focus on, on um, creating activist archaeologists. And so Public archaeology has, has, a, has a lot of facets, but 
Um, in, in today's world, you need to know what kind of political world you're walking into and how to talk to different groups in ways that um, engage them without turning them off and ways in which you can um, you can make a bigger tent for archaeology because that's really we're at a crucial stage right now where our, we're, we're threatened from a lot of different directions and um, we really need to kind of make a broader public archaeology tent if we want to survive into the future. And so we're really trying to train archaeologists that think about the the discipline of archaeology very broadly and and how that intersects with activism and, and politics. Yeah, that's really important, uh, you know, to understand how policy is made. And, and as you were, you know, describing the program earlier, there is a component in the program to understand the laws that you know, form our field and inform our field. Um, so that's, uh, I couldn't agree more that that's, you know, a crucial part of being an archaeologist and also being, uh, you know, as you said, uh, a member, a civic, a civically engaged member of the public. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so uh, one of the other components that I've been interested in, and it looks like uh, it's also part of the MAPA program, is communication. Uh, mm. And that seems to be, another useful tool for getting archaeology um, outside of academia and more into the public and other fields. Uh, what are some of the things that you focus on in terms of, you know, like science communication or communication with the public? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's something we're still building on. Um, it's something, it's a, a, a kind of developing a course right now, actually, with, with that in mind. Um, so right now, our focus, we, we have this kind of digital focus, you know, so we have a blog in which we have our students um, provide a lot of their kind of thoughts into a digital sphere. So I think it's really important for um, any archaeologists that are kind of coming out now that want to have a public aspect to their research really needs to know how to operate within the kind of digital world. And so that's, you know, obviously things like podcasts and blogs and Facebook and Instagram, like we really try to train our students about how these various platforms are really critical to to sharing their information. You know, we're not trying to produce a lot of people that are just going to write a bunch of journal articles that um, just other archaeologists read. We need, we need to kind of meet people where they live, and a lot of people live in the digital world. Yeah. So, so we do that, um, but the course I'm, I'm creating kind of tries to go beyond that because that's relatively obvious um, into different aspects of, of sharing archaeological knowledge. So um, there's there's a module in there about how to create um, board games and stuff like that to kind of work with, with kids and other people, um, ways in which you can kind of get work within an educational system. You know, every state has uh, different curricular demands about when history and especially kind of archaeology comes into play. And so here in New York is kind of fourth and fifth grade. And so um, trying to think about ways we can build modules for fourth and fifth grade teachers to teach students about kind of the local archaeology within the region is something that we're, we're working on as well. Um, and then doing things like video games. We have some people here that are really into building video games that focus on archaeology as well. So any variety of ways that can reach a broader public than the journal article that, you know, 100 people read is yeah. is it's always going to be a positive thing. That is really cool. 
Well, I had, you know, I had all these questions that I had prepared, um, but I wasn't sure if you had some some other points that you wanted to talk about. You know, if you had anything in, uh, specifically that you wanted to address, um, you know, I'm I'm wide open to anything you wanted to talk about. Um, well, I mean, I, I do appreciate being able to talk about the MAPA program quite a bit, so I appreciate that that opportunity. Um, I mean, one one thing that uh, I've been thinking about a bit, maybe it's maybe it's a, a future podcast. To be honest with you, um, there's there's this kind of interesting point in time where we're at right now about kind of um, where archaeology is in terms of thinking about elite knowledge and kind of um, expert knowledge and how that's being kind of threatened within our kind of political world right now. Um, but I think that might be beyond what we want to talk about today. <laughs> I yeah, think that's but kind of- I, I would really love to explore that. And that's something that I've been stewing on probably from a different angle, but kind of the... Uh, one of the results of, you know, elite knowledge and the way power is held is kind of like, uh, you know, it comes back to that question, who, who owns culture or who owns the past? And mm-hmm. when you have uh, elite priorities, and right now streamlining is a big buzzword, and what we see in practice of streamlining is gutting of regulations. And so, you know, you have national monument status being revoked from, you know, like Bears Ears and and Grand Staircase and, you know, others. Um, And that's a constant worry for uh, heritage and archaeology is, you know, what's going to happen when, you know, some, some public official, you know, gets a little trigger happy with streamlining and puts an entire you know, archaeological program or public archaeology or even, you know, historic status, you know, national register status, you know, what's left to protect them if they just don't care. Um, And so that's one of those things, too, that I I think, you know, it folds back into to MAPA and, you know, being a civically engaged archaeologist is understanding the kinds of tides that ebb Mm -hmm. and flow through politics like this and and right now we're in kind of a a a phase of crisis where you're looking at anything you can cut and you know these things are things that shouldn't be cut but if you can stay a little bit ahead of the curve as an archaeologist and as you know someone who can shape policy or understand where policy is going you know then you can see these things coming on the horizon and say you know, maybe get some direct action going and, yeah. uh, you know, then protect various things in your community. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of where it all comes down to is, is what can you actually affect? And it yeah. tends to be on the smaller scale. So, you know, just being more involved in the community is, is probably a good starting point, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I agree with you entirely. That kind of local connection is really, really super critical. And that's one reason why you know, creating archaeologists that see themselves as part of their job is to be civically engaged, right? Because so that that hasn't been part of our training. You know, our training kind of classically as archaeologists is, you know, we, we go in the field for a short amount of time. No one is allowed to see the work that we're conducting because it's so sensitive. Yeah. We bring everything back away from the community from which we took it. It sits in a lab. We analyze it. The results are disseminated to a very, very small group of people, never go back to the public as a whole. And then maybe we'll show up and tell them what their their heritage and history is. But 
you know, that's that's the, kind of the extent of our engagement. Um, and that's not civic engagement in any kind of fashion. <laughs> no. no. And that does. And and so I think one that's that's not just us either. I mean, that's that's kind of broadly academics. Um, there was a really interesting book written. I don't know if you've um, read it. It's called uh, Citizens, Experts and the Environment no. by Frank Fisher. And um, he wrote it, I think, in like 1999 or 2000. And he was really pointing to what what we're living in right now. And what so he's mostly about how um, how the environmental movement was getting itself into trouble. And he was saying, so what we have here in kind of laws like NEPA and whatnot are this these outside experts being the only ones with a voice about how we need to protect our resources, right? And that um, if, if we want to talk about a watershed, we need you know environmental scientists to come in and look at it and tell us um, how we ought to protect it. And he said the, the major problem came from when the, the expert moved from ownership over facts to ownership over values. Uh, and, and I think we're in exactly the same place right now in that um, archaeologists have traditionally claimed control over both facts and values. You know, we, we tell people what happened in the past, but also what they ought to do with their past. Yeah. And, and so we get challenged on this by, um, as being these kind of elite groups of people that are coming in and telling people what to do. And, and so we're, we're kind of being threatened, um, with this kind of anti-elitism, um, because of it. And what I, I, what I'm really thinking that we need to do as public archeologists is, you know, that whole question of, you know, who owns the past, I think is somewhat misleading because it's kind of a either either one group or another owns the past. Right. And I think what we really need to do is we need to divide that into who owns the ability to create facts about the past and who owns the ability to attach values to those facts. And I think we as archaeologists are well suited for the first. I think we need to claim authority over creating facts about the past, but we need to relinquish the idea that we have the control over values. And that needs to be something local. That's that's where community engagement is really critical because value is always subjective and always localized. And I think that's where we really engage with the public is through that kind of generation of value or, or um, uh, appreciation of value and recognizing that it's not our values that really matter, but it's the values of the people um, the stakeholders that really matter. But at the same time, we don't want to relinquish our ability and our authority to create the facts at the same time. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's kind of where we're we're standing right now. We have to move away from this kind of elitism, but not give up our expertise at the same time. That is a really interesting transition. And that's, uh, you know, that it's tricky territory to navigate, but I, I couldn't agree more. That's exactly where we need to be going yeah but it's tough right because that's that's not the stage that archaeology well maybe we're getting to that stage but we've been this kind of hyper relativistic group for a while now where instead of questioning our values we actually question our facts more than anything else <laughs> yeah. you know we, we we ask questions like does the past exist or is there a, is there a truth about the past or you know, is, is there any reason to create objective knowledge? And 
and the public sees that. The public sees us question our ability to to generate knowledge, and and that's not what we want to want to threaten, right? We we want to yeah. hold on to our ability to generate knowledge, but we want to abdicate our ability to attach value to it. So, public archaeology as a whole has just kind of been questioning the wrong thing for a really long time, I think, and we kind of and it's kind of coming back to bite us, right? Yeah. Now, you know, we've been we've been questioning for decades whether or not there's a real past there. And then we tell people we need to protect it. Like, they're not going to believe us. <laughs> yeah. Their um, eyes glazed over in the first part where we got all into, you know, the postmodernist approach of uh, does the past even exist? And then when we're like, oh, uh, so somewhere along the way we decided the past does exist. Here's all the stuff from the past. Uh, it, you have to protect this now. It's going to cost you a lot of money. And I know you're you're fighting gentrification and stuff, but you need to allocate square footage for this thing too. And they're like, really? Uh, just a minute ago, you weren't sure if it even existed. So Exactly. Right. So yeah, we're like navel gazing and now we're all of a sudden we're caught unawares that everything's been changing around us. And so I, I think, I mean, I think it could be a good thing for archaeology now that we're kind of in a place where navel gazing is becoming a little bit more dangerous and that we need to kind of wake up to the real world around us and that we're, we're enmeshed in really, really dicey politics and really dangerous times where archaeology as we know it could cease to exist unless we pull ourselves together and really create a true public archaeology that understands what our position is and what our expertise is, but also recognizing that we don't have full authority over the value of what we're working on and that we need to abdicate that to, to the publics that we work with. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. And I think that we need to, you know, by being more involved with the public, uh, we can kind of help guide our research in ways that are more aligned with, you know, the, the general population's priorities. And so, yep. you know, when we're, you know, say for example, in CRM archeology, span if, if we're kind of testing what we're finding against the, you know, the big questions that really guide people's daily lives, like what am I going to do about, um, you know, rising housing prices? What am I going to do about the homeless pop, the homeless problem in the city? Um, yeah. You know, and then if you're in CRM and you're like, um, well, here I am, um, everything passes 106, so I'm just going to rubber stamp this thing that is totally going to aggravate both of those things that, um, you know, trouble various cities throughout the country. You know, that's kind of one of those things that's not really making us any friends um, as archaeologists. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then the other side of that, too, is that... Um, we're, we're really, we don't ask the big questions like we used to either, you know, the kind of meta narratives that and massive histories and big questions aren't things that archaeologists do as much as, as they once did. And so when, when the public tunes in as they rarely do, but when they do, they see us, they see us arguing about like pottery types and tiny little problems when we should be tackling major questions about like environmental change and, uh, rise of urbanism and, and major things that have happened in the past and that are happening today and that we actually have some interesting things to, to talk about right. if we kind of get ourselves out of the tiny little holes that we're, we're normally in and kind of look at the big questions. Yeah. And those things are, you know, like you just said, totally relevant to the conditions that people are seeing, you know, day to day. And so that's the kind of thing that can make our field 
you know, gain relevance to the public. And, you know, yeah. to go back to the uh, grad student that you had mentioned earlier, you know, the, the rise of emergencies and, um, you know, climate change and all that. And, you know, how do, how do large sedentary populations, you know, to go to your own research, how, how do they react to, uh, you know, environmental instability and stuff exactly. like that? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, none of these problems are new. I mean, they're all um, unique in their configuration right now, but you know, we have tens of thousands of years of humans living through a variety of situations that are in some ways analogous to what we're doing now. And there's, there's really is relevant information to be gained from those past experiences. Totally. Uh, and that, and that's how, that's how we, how we re reclaim relevancy in, in today's world is we have to have those really important questions that impact people's lives today. You know, we're like you were saying as before, you know, streamlining everything's at a razor's edge and anything that's not relevant is going to go away. Yeah. And uh, if I had any um, advice for someone a little bit further along in their career when they're thinking about getting a thesis or a dissertation together, it is to choose a relevant topic. You know, choose something that when you went home and you had to talk to your grandparents about it, they would actually be interested in it <laughs> beyond just that their grandkid is doing it, right? Like something that they would actually be really engaged with. And and not not all of us find those topics, but we need to really search for them. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing too, that uh, it doesn't necessarily diminish the, the finer grained um, research questions, but it goes exactly to what you had just mentioned on how we need to find ways to reclaim relevancy. I, I love that phrase, reclaiming relevancy. Um, but by taking these these little kernels, the finer grained research questions, and plugging it back into the larger meta narratives, like you had said, th those big questions that really matter. So, like you know, if if you're studying, you know, rabbit bones from the Paleolithic or whatever, uh, you know, you've got to be able to put that back into something like a time of severe en environmental stress, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, the kinds of things that, that are bothering people today, you know, that they're like, uh, you know, you, you always hear about, um, you know, people complaining about, you know, some study was, was used to see, you know, some, some useless thing. And they, they look at it and they go, this is useless. I can't believe somebody got like an $80,000 grant to, <laughs> right. to do this thing. And it's like, well, that's just what makes it out into the news. I'm sure that the actual applications are, are actually, you know, quasi useful. But, um, you know, when it comes to communicating with the public, that's a failure and that's painful and that's embarrassing. Yeah. And it's dangerous yes. um, for our field in a big, big way. Yeah. You know, just to bring that back around to MAPA, then um, the one thing that we do that not all of our students appreciate at the beginning, but hopefully they appreciate by the end is that we actually have our MA students taking similar theory courses to our PhD students. And um, in a lot of MA programs that are very kind of technically oriented, you know, you kind of, you don't really need to take courses in landscape theory or any of these other kind of larger theoretical questions um, oriented courses, but we do for this very reason, because it's through theory, it's through these sometimes mind-numbing, soul-sapping classes about theoretical questions, but that's where <laughs> you find relevancy, right? Yes. Like where relevant questions emerge. Relevant questions don't emerge from looking at geophysical data, they emerge from understanding 
what that geophysical physical data means in much more broad contexts. And so our MAPA students do take some really um, um, difficult, I guess is the best way of saying it, really challenging um, theoretical courses that prepare them to ask those big questions or at least recognize what those big questions are so that they can claim that relevancy, so that they can ask the, the things that are going to engage the broader public. So um, that, that's another thing that I'm, I'm proud of about, about the MAPA courses that we offer is that we do try to offer that kind of well-roundedness about asking big questions too. That is super important. Uh, you know, theory, I would put theory, you know, kind of as a very, very close second to doing field work in terms of being prepared to take on a, you know, a career in archaeology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's one of those things that it really provides the context for what you're doing, because if you understand the the history of a theoretical approach or the history of anthropological thought, then you can kind of come to look at it as a conversation. And so you yeah. start to understand the point that you have entered the conversation at and, you know, the kinds of questions that you're responding to and, you know, the kinds of things that have been said before about what you're doing. And, and you know, it just kind of helps you build a more watertight uh, research approach and, you know, to bring it back to MAPA and public archaeology, you know, these are the kinds of, of questions that, you know, have been criticized on, you know, and just eviscerated on, you know, deep academic levels so that you can, mm -hmm. if you can pass that kind of muster, then you can, it can probably pass public muster. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it also, it, it engages you with those broader questions that are outside of anthropology too, or, or at least outside of archaeology, <clears throat> really large scale ideas about what it means to be human, what it means to live in this world, how do we form societies, how do we um, you know, move along in terms of broadening, broadening our ideas of what civilization is, like all of those kinds of things are, are really engaging to the public. They love those questions. Yeah. And we are uniquely suited to, to address those questions, but not if we don't understand the theoretical backing to them. Totally. And it helps us tell a better story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much more engaging story for sure. Because if yeah. we don't, the problem is if we don't do it, then someone else does, right? And that's when we start getting, you know, alien theories and you know, lost <laughs> civilizations and, and junk like that. Because we created a an absence. You know, we we moved away from talking about these sometimes because yeah. we're navel gazing, and you know, those those vacuums got filled. Yeah, so we, we kept, weren't around. We were busy. Yeah. Like you said, we were busy navel gazing, so someone else had to step in and, and answer the question because we weren't around for it. Yeah, yeah, that's why we, we got to reclaim that in a, yeah. in a big. And so, yeah, we have to we have to train a new generation of archaeologists that are don't have the same mindset as we had just a couple of decades ago. You know, things have changed so dramatically. Um, we really need a new way of thinking about archaeology and its intersection with kind of the broader world. And it needs to be thought from from the bottom up at every every level and every facet. Yeah, it's so refreshing to see a really thoughtful approach to training early career archaeologists, especially, you know, to seek jobs outside the box. And it, it really looks like MAPA as a program has has really been carefully constructed to, you know, help, like you said, reclaim relevancy, but also to be ready to be applied in 
so many different settings because you know that's what we're really good at as anthropologists is understanding all of the intersections of of whatever human activity does. Um, so that's that's great. I'm real excited for what you're doing over there. Great. Yeah, we are too. We are too. No, it's going pretty well so far. Nice. Well, I got a couple questions um, from a listener uh, that are. Uh, I think, uh, very well suited to our conversation today. Um, Archaeology Lola on Twitter asks, it seems like with social media that public archaeology is a topic of anything goes. Am I wrong? Is it a topic of anything goes? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think really public archaeology is a topic of anything goes. I mean, I think that's... that. It's part of the problem of, of losing relevancy is that we do seem kind of so disorganized and asking just about anything. We should we should realize what we have the ability to talk about and we should focus in on what our data can actually address. Um, so I think I think we need to be careful about uh, about not appearing willing to talk about just anything without the data to back it up. So I think I think we need to be careful about that. That's a really good answer. And she asks another question that I, I think is a, a great follow-up to what you just said. She also asks how science communication or SCICOM can more effectively reach beyond those already well-versed in the subject. Mm. Well, you have to meet people where they live. I think that's the most important thing. You know, um, So you have to figure out where your prospective audience is. So for, um, for us, we often think about our prospective audience as being, say, like students, like kids are, are a great audience to, to engage with. And so the kids live within the educational system. So you have to think about the ways in which you can engage with them through the educational system. Or perhaps we're really interested in engaging with, um, with a community that's much more digitally organized. And so you have to find them where they live there. Or just from my own experience, um, and this is not unique to me, this is almost every archaeologist has this experience, is how do you deal with the amateur archaeologists in your region? And by amateur archaeologists, you can't see it, but I'm doing scare quotes, more <laughs> looters, right? Like, how do you deal with the looters that live in your area? Yeah. Um, people, the people that they know more about the archaeology than you do. They know where the sites are. Yep. <laughs> they, know, they know where everything is. Um, and how do, you, how do you engage with them? And again, it's going where they live. And so I've, I've been on a couple of John boats going around coastal Georgia and South Carolina with some good old boys talking about where the sites are and watching them walk around and pick up things. And I'm willing to kind of tell them stories about it. And it's a, it's a long process, but you try to bring them around over the long term um, through, through relationships. So yes. I would say it's all, it's all about building relationships by finding people where they live. Don't try to drag them into, you know, where you live. Don't try to, don't try to engage them through the, the normal venues, but find where they already are at and build relationships with them there. Yes, I totally agree. I've, I've been in the same situation too. You know, I, I lived in Kentucky for a long time and, you know, I, over the years, I would get approached by, you know, friends and, you know, uh, like my fiance's family is all from there and, you know, they would bring me arrowheads or they'd show me pictures. Um, and, a lot of times they have these amazing collections of artifacts. Oh yeah. But they also know exactly where they found it and they can yeah. describe the landscape, they can describe the 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 topography, the location. 
those kinds of things. The way, uh, you know, the spatial relationship of things are like, I found this over here, this over there, this over there. And they start to make these inferences, you know, they're already thinking about it in the ways that we would, but they don't have, you know, maybe the same training or the same tools that we do. Um, so they're, they're very powerful allies for what we're doing. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's all about making relationships and science communication doesn't end at a podcast. It doesn't end at a blog post or, you know, a tweet. It's like you said, I, I couldn't say it better. You've got to find them where they live. So, you know, who's, who's receiving this? And that's what you got to be thinking about. Who's receiving it? what are they going to do with it? And, you know, maybe can I find people who should be receiving this and help them uh, get that information? So that's, that's really great. And that's also a really refreshing approach. That's, it's very inclusive. It's, that's the kind of direction that we need to be moving as a field is to be more inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also comes back to that kind of elitism as well. You know, the, the need to, um, Deva- not diva to to um, give up our our control over valuation, but still control our authority over facts. You know, because a lot of these kind of like say again kind of moving to those amateur archaeologists, you know, th- they want to be part of the process, but we've created a situation where they can't. Right? We've created a situation where yeah. you need to have a MA or a PhD to put a put a shovel on the ground, and we haven't created any kind of room for them. And so we really need to create room for these other people that want to be engaged and can be engaged if if we can kind of create the space for that. And that really comes down to kind of reducing our own kind of elite ideas of, of what it means to, to do archaeology. Nice. Yeah, totally agree. Well, Matt, um, that's about all I had. Uh, was there anything else that you uh, feel like I might have missed? No, no. It's a really great conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time for this, and uh, it was great talking with you, and I would love to stay in touch to talk more about um, the other, you know, the the other approaches to, um, you know, elite elite power and uh, elite control. Uh, that would yeah. make a really fun podcast. Yeah, that, the other direction I do, my more theoretical direction is I'm really interested in uh, anarchic theory and how that can be brought to bear in terms of um, study in the past and in conducting archaeology. So yes, that could, that could be a future discussion, I guess. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a hundred percent on board. All right. Well, good talking to you. All righty. Likewise. Talk to you soon. If you'd like to learn more about the MAPA program, you can follow them on Facebook at MAPA Binghamton, and you can also follow along on their blog on their website. I'll have links to that in the show notes on the accompanying blog post. Thanks again for listening to Go Dig a Hole. If you liked this episode and want to support the work of Go Dig a Hole, you can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole and subscribe. Uh, There's various rewards for subscribers. Um, As always, you can follow me on any of the social media at Go Dig a Hole. I'm on Twitter. There's a Facebook page, uh, Instagram. Uh, And as always, you can also follow along with show notes that often go in greater detail with links 
on godigahole.com. Also, big thanks to Louisville post-punk band Invaders for letting me use their song, Dig a Hole. You can check them out on Bandcamp.